friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What's up, y'all? It's MC Lars. This is the MC Lars podcast. I am recording at a hotel in Laconia, New Hampshire, where I'm about to do a show at the high school here. I just finished a tour with uh, Front A Lot, Mega Ran, and Schaefer the Dark Lord. Thank you to everyone who came. My next tour starts a week from Friday in Cleveland with I Fight Dragons, and we will be all... I was going to say up and down the East Coast, but pretty much just down the East Coast. Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Rochester, Boston, Teaneck, New Jersey, Brooklyn, Philly, Baltimore. Then I play the D.C. area by myself. NerdcoreTour.com for dates. I want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters, some of the new supporters, Vicky, Tristan, and Lucian. Thank y'all for your kindness and your support and your freshness. And shout out to some of the old Patreon supporters, Mark, Mitchell, and Mike. Thank you all very much. I'm doing the Chronicles of Narnia. The next song will be the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So let's get right into it. This week, I talked to one of my absolute musical heroes, John S. Hall of King Missile. Now, those of you who aren't super young will remember a song called Detachable Penis, which was a surprise hit for King Missile in 1992. And uh, this was, you know, the era of Nirvana and alternative music crossing over to mainstream radio. And the song was also popular because around this time, a disgruntled wife cut off the member of her husband or ex-husband or whatever, John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt. And so a lot of DJs would play Detachable Penis and joke about it. Since then, the song has kind of taken an interesting turn in this culture of, of the idea of gender as a construct. John and I talk about this on the podcast, and it's kind of cool like that this song is still relevant. King Missile was on Beavis and Butthead a few times. John actually reminds me that he was on three times. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I wish I could go back and tell the 12-year-old me that one day I did this. Like, if I could go back and tell the sixth grade version of myself that John from King Missile came to my apartment and answered questions, played a few songs and like really took the time and was respectful. And just the fact that he came out to talk to me means a lot, you know, he, it's, 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 it's a time commitment. It's a few hours to come do a podcast and, um, that he sat down, brought his instrument, had funny things to say. My wife, Ashley was like to her, it would have been if Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth came and talked to us and came to the apartment. It was the same thing. Like John has just been nothing but a cool guy and I will not gush too much, even though I want to, but This is the guy who kind of showed me that you could take poetry and punk rock and storytelling and having a unique voice and make something special and take something that had some sort of mainstream acceptance and then launch an entire discography of brilliant work. Like there's so much great output by this guy. Also, if you stick around to the end, uh, John plays a few songs. And afterwards, I found this interview I did with him in September of 2000 when I was in New York for the... CMJ Music Conference. So that's kind of crazy. If you want to hear a 20-year-old interview and hear how my skills have increased or decreased, I don't know, but I was 17 when I first interviewed him. So I found that and I put it at the end as like a little piece of history. So stick around to the very, very bitter end if you want to hear that too. Let's get into it. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for supporting. And a big thank you to John for his time and his respect and for making this podcast fresh as heck. This is the MC Lars Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MC Lars Podcast. Today, we have, I won't lie, one of my musical heroes, John S. Hall. Give it up for John S. Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! 
Oh, thank you. I can hear you all applauding. That's beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm kind of overwhelmed. <laughs> um, John, you you came all the way to our apartment early on a Saturday to talk about music and your life. And for that, I wanted to begin the podcast by thanking you. Yes. You know, I had originally asked, could we make it later in the day? But because I had this Dave David Amram um, uh, jazz thing that I went to last night. It was the first annual village trip jazz jam, which sounded like it was going to be like not very good, but it was amazing. It was really great. It was him, who you know who he is, David Avram. I know Am his I? name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, he did the music for "Pull My Daisy." And oh yeah, Manchurian Candidate back in the day, and um, with Kerouac, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so now, so last night it was him and like four new school music students and they were great they were all fantastic and uh and his in-between song things are wonderful and yeah it was a really good night um and i thought i was going to get home late and i did but then i I had to do some other stuff in the afternoon so or or in the early morning so i had to change this to 9 a.m thank you for getting up and accommodating my ridiculous schedule well one thing you are not is lazy. You are a man who, you are just, you do, you do so much. And I think that is like awesome. Like the fact that you're, would you agree? Yes, I would. You know, like I actually remember 25 years ago, somebody interviewing me and asking and, and accusing me of being a slacker. And I think because the movie slacker was out and like, that was the hip thing to be was a slacker. And I was like, insulted i was like no you know i do a lot of shit and you have had multiple projects you have you've been you're a lawyer too is that right or am i wrong about that well my bar fees are due so if i don't pay them then i guess i'm not a lawyer anymore um but and i don't work as a lawyer i work at a law firm in a non-legal capacity um but technically if i were to be fired tomorrow which, depending on what we discussed today, could happen, um, then, uh, uh, then yeah, I could go and hang my shingle out, as they say, and be a lawyer. Why? Do you need help? <laughs> no, but... Okay. I was just, you know, it's just intriguing to me looking at your career and looking at, you know, how, how you've, you've built a way to make your art something that you own, that you do on your own terms, that... Uh, it, Correct me if I'm wrong. You don't. You're not an artist who has to be on tour six months a year to to feed himself. Yeah. Um. There was only a few years where I didn't have a job other than my banking missile. Um. When we were signed to Atlantic, we weren't making a lot of money, but we were on the road and getting per diems from the label, so we were surviving. Um. But it wasn't just. It wasn't so much the lifestyle that bothered me about that. It was actually, depending on my art for income, I felt a little compromised. And now that it's solely an avocation rather than a vocation, um, I feel a lot more free. And my work in the last few years reflects, I think, a complete lack of interest in any commercial success whatsoever. And I'm happy with that. You know, I, I try to do stuff that amuses me that I think might amuse the handful of people that, you know, I might want to amuse, you know. And uh, 
they're imaginary people, this imaginary audience of people who I think might enjoy what, you know, this kind of crazy thing that I've just thought of to do. And you've influenced like a whole generation of people in in other genres. The other day, a colleague I work with, Megaran, works with this guy, uh, Open Mike Eagle. Oh, from California. Yeah, and I met him when I was in L.A. a few years ago. Great, great, great guy. Love that guy. He said, he said, I said, hey, Mike, I'm, I'm MC Lars. I'm friends with Megaran. The first thing he says to me, he goes, oh. You're a huge King Missile fan, aren't you? And I'm like, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how you knew that, but he, yeah, he told me that yeah, you you're the with other him. one. That's what he was saying. <laughs> and we had this moment. I'm like, you, these people are are rare and special, but they have a sense of humor and an appreciation for like good, good weird music. Wow, you just gave me another reason to go back to L.A. I really like that guy. He was he was great. I really like that guy. He um. I like how he, but in a way, he reminds me of you and funny, but also thoughtful and socially like relevant stuff. And someone who, you know, when you see him on stage, you know, he's doing it for real. He can't help being up there. You know, it's like, yeah, in his, in his soul. I don't know if you believe in the soul. Do you believe in the soul, John? That's a big question. I, I mean, I think that's as good a word for it as any, you know, the inner light. That's the thing that like, you know, kind of like drives the mechanism of the, of the human being forward, the thing that motivates you, inspires you, uh, uh, that you're passionate about. Um, I mean, when you're in love, when you're driven to create, um, yeah, it, it feels like something, you know, and it feels, I, you know, like I think a cognitive scientist can locate it perhaps in the brain, but, um, that doesn't matter. It's, it's what it feels like. Mm. Um, and so whether it's a cognitive trick or whether it's a real phenomenon, it doesn't matter. Um, I believe in it. I trust it. I think people are better off if they do trust it and go with it. Lead with the heart, as they say. That's another word for it, heart, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not literally your heart. And yet they center it there, like when they draw pictures of it, like ancient, in you know, Hindu cultures and all that. That's where that chakra is. I don't know. It feels like it comes from there, even though it's probably cognitive, or some way the cog- cognitive connects to the heart. I don't know. I don't know the. I don't know what the latest physiological <laughs> explanation for it is, but I acknowledge there could be a physiological explanation for it, or it could just be more mystical than that your mystical shit album you have a chant on there um venam konvantam aravinda dalaya taksam bahavatam samasitam buddha sundarangam i wish uh govinda govinda madi purusham tamaham bashami so um when i was like 14 some krishna on the street on 8th street was trying to sell me this record for two dollars you know like whatever you could pay so i gave him two dollars yeah and he said yeah you should get this record george harrison produced it and i did not believe that right right but it's true he actually did produce it you know now you can check on wikipedia and like um and uh, and that album had the phonetic transcript of the chants. So and and you could memorize. So I did memorize them. 
Wow. Um, I also memorized Zimbra by Talking Heads. Gaji Beri Bimba Glenjidi Lali Kali Kado. You know that one from the Fear of Music Arc? Right, yeah. yeah. I like, uh, <laughs> and, and Elton John has one called Solar Prestige e Gamon uh, on the Caribou record. Those, like, to learn things phonetically. I haven't learned a lot of foreign language songs, but these nonsense songs um, are fun were fun for me to learn. Oh, actually, I shouldn't say that. Like, that is not a nonsense song. Like, learning it phonetically is what I mean. Right. I never learned the translation uh, fully, but it's, like, about how awesome Govinda is. And is Gov- Govinda is the Krishna one He's deities? one of the incarnations of, of Brahma, the supreme, you know, Krishna is... Con- actually... Some say, well, in the, in the Hare Krishna religion, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, they put Krishna first. Mm. But there are lots of incarnations of God in the Hindu pantheon. It's a pantheon. So there you go. <laughs> you, I remember seeing on the PBS had the United States of Poetry documentary and Ginsburg was on it and a bunch of it, this. And you're, you read a poem on that, right? The... Uh, my lover. Yeah. We actually recorded Take Stuff from Work. I was talking to Bob Holman, who organized that thing, just about a month ago. And he was saying, I wish we still had that, you know, that. Because that's what I wanted to do, was Take Stuff from Work. But Mark Pellington, the director, had a vision for what Take Stuff should Work, work should be, because he hadn't heard the original. Hmm. And, it, and I'm not really an actor. And the way he wanted me to do it felt not like what I wrote. Um, so I couldn't act it a different way. So we abandoned that shoot, and about a month later or more, we came up with another concept, which was to use the two musicians I was working with, Jane Scarpantoni and Sasha Forte. Mm. Um, and uh, we recorded uh, My Lover. I had done a solo record with them, or was about to, uh, called uh, The Body Has a Head. Right, and that I remember that only came out originally... In Europe, and then it became the Green Album? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Manufactari Criminali put it out, and then we, uh, then we like, put it out ourselves. So that record was kind of like a first departure from your Atlantic years, in a way, right? Am I right with the chronology? That's the first record, is it? Yes, that's the first record I did without... And Dougie Baum put the drums on that also, um, but he wasn't in that video for United States of Poetry. And yeah, um, yeah, they dropped us, and uh, and those guys wanted to put something out, so we did. I had this one song I remember, uh, something about it was it was I wrote this song based on this acid trip I took, and um, and uh, that was the one song that that was ever cut from an album. Oh. Yeah, he said uh, I don't I don't. Uh, he said, I don't understand what you're doing here. You know, I was like, oh, well, this is a reference to the odd couple. And this is a reference to that time I was tripping and I couldn't understand what the guy behind the counter was saying to me. He wanted, like, it was like a discount ice cream thing. And he wanted, and then it would cost 36 cents, which I knew. But it sounded like he was saying 30 cents, not 36 he just said 30 cents. And I thought this was hysterically funny because I was tripping. But anyway, well, Magical Ice Cream Land. So wait, that song has still ne- never been released? I don't think so. Do you ha- still have the masters of it? I don't know. Oh. I don't know. 
That might be a cool but, yeah, post. Yeah, there's a reference to Sheldon, which was the Rob Reiner character on The Odd Couple when Penny Marshall was the secretary and her boyfriend was Rob Reiner and he played Sheldon <laughs> with no O. So it's just Sheldon, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> That's in that song too. I don't know why I'm talking about this song. Nobody will ever hear. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then you've had some, like, one of the things I've always loved about you that as a, as a middle schooler, your views on gender and masculinity were, you know, for the MTV generation and very ma- a macho time, you know, as a kid, it was, I feel like a lot of my views on that come from the King Missile, King Missile stuff and also like songs, songs like Sensitive Artists, you know, like being able to have an ownership of having your own, having a unique view of masculinity. Even your, even detachable penis kind of touches on that. And well, I think more, I think more detachable than sensitive. I mean, sensitive, I was making fun of myself and making fun of that kind of a character who's just too sensitive to be like pleasant, you know, <laughs> to, to in his own world, uh, to, uh, to experience anybody else's, uh, worldview, let's say. Um, um, but, but yeah, the idea of of a man being sensitive, I guess, is a little bit away from that. But detachable was definitely, um, it's not overt um, because I couldn't figure out a way to make it overt. Um, but it's really about ambivalence about masculinity in 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 large part. You know, it's the idea of wanting to put it on the shelf at least sometimes. Mm. Um, um, and, you know, and it, you know, you think about it these days, it would be lovely. Uh, some men might, might actually love to have the opportunity, uh, to leave it at home sometimes. Like if you could go to a party and get as drunk as you want and never worry about what you might do, because of course you can still harass a woman without, without one come to think of it so i guess it doesn't solve the problem <laughs> never mind i guess the idea was without the without the penis your your mindset would be different you'd be less uh uh you'd be less motivated to uh to uh you know baser instincts Right, the the freedom of being without that kind of ball and chain between your yeah, legs. Yeah, not just yeah, but not just the organ, but the but the drive that comes with it. You know, yeah. you know, I, the Krishna, There was a rumor that the Krishnas put saltpeter in their food to decrease their sex drive. I don't know if that's true, oh. but like somebody told me, you know, because they used to have those. Oh, they still do every year. They have the festival in Washington Square Park, huh. and they give you these food. And somebody said, "Don't eat it." You know, <laughs> saltpeter, it'll ruin your sex drive. Um, it's like, I don't know if, I mean, it seemed like the kind of thing someone would make up. Maybe that's, we should uh, invite some politicians to that. To that <laughs> <pot lab. laughs> yeah, yeah, hand it out at the door at, at frat parties too. Yeah. That's what sororities should do. Right. You know, I was reading to to that, you know, sororities aren't allowed to serve, a lot of sororities aren't allowed to serve alcohol. So if the women wanted to go to a party where there was alcohol, they had to go to the frat parties. And that's part of the huge problem. That's crazy. Yes. Still, you think? Um, I don't know about yeah. still, but I think I think that's what Ford said, or somebody said that in one of their, like essays that mm. or no no maybe it was the woman in the new yorker i can't remember her name Ugh. 
but but there's a lot of good writing in the New Yorker this week about this, and uh, uh, you know, at least three women in the New Yorker are writing about. And I think one of them said that at our parties we couldn't have alcohol, so we had to go if we wanted to drink to the frat parties, which really does sound insane. It's a, the institutionalized, like messed up power dynamic. Yes, and. What I what I've always loved about your songs is a lot of your characters are strong, strong women who you know like Gary and Melissa, right? Like their consensual, strong, insane relationship is to me that was like, oh, that's the model of like a men don't own all the power when it comes to sexuality. It's a consensual thing, and people could go as crazy as they want. Yeah, in that song, it was deliberately meant to be equal. Like yeah. everything was equal. You know, later on, I go into more of like female. Do- well, Leather Clown from the They record right. is a is a is a strong female figure, <laughs> but but made ridiculous. Something I always wonders, like your autobiographical stories, how true they are. Like the Leather, leather- Clown is true up until the Leather Clown. Basically, <laughs> there was this guy Ethan, and um, um, and I was going to put something in that story about how one time. We were on 6th Avenue, and I thought I saw $70 in the street, a 50 and a 20. Um, and I was really excited. I snatched it up. Right, It was just lying there, no wallet or anything. I snatched it up, and then I gave him the 20. And then I looked, and I saw that like the other bill was also a 20. I was like, I didn't mean to give you half, you know? <laughs> So I wanted some money back, but he wouldn't give me the money back. But anyway, like we used to go to 8th Street for pizza and jelly donuts, and we did put them on the street sometimes and watch the cars drive over it. And then we did sit on a stoop and talk about stuff, but mm. not sexual fantasies. We were in the fourth grade, and there was some interest in our fourth grade teacher, but we didn't really know what sex was, mm. um, even though we were uh, uh, allegedly sophisticated West Village um uh, 12 year olds, uh, or what? No, how old are you in fourth ten? grade? 10, 10, ten year yeah. olds. Yeah, we didn't really know that much about it. So that was the first bit of absurdity. Was and of course, right, if you're a 10 year old and you're into like female dominance, then what you want is a leather clown, you know, you don't want just the full on, you know, leather mi- dominatrix. You want, you know, you want a little fun and lightheartedness in it. So there it was. And that's like a, a theme of yours is the, this, every song is like, has a surprise. I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but the juxtaposition of like the sandbox, for instance, mm. right? Yeah. Finding the poop in the sandbox. Yeah. Like, right. I think I haven't really thought about it that way. I mean, I guess, I think actually in the last few years, there's been more, like I've been songwriting more than writing um, poems or spoken word things. And there's, there's a little bit less of that. There's still some songs with twists in them, um, but then, but then, like I've been setting myself the project of like just writing songs. Like I'm in this thing, the Bushwick Book Club. I don't know if you about. Oh it, yeah, where yeah. they assign you a book every every month, and you have to write a song and then perform it. So like for those, I'm really trying to honor the book, you know. And so they're usually not that twisty. The last one was a little with a twist but like the one for the coming up uh which will have happened already by the time this airs uh, is for animal farm Mm. and that's going to be a straight up song about i've decided to make it a song about the plight of animals um 
on 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 farms or you know just general like I I named the song after the Peter Singer book from 1973 called Animal Liberation. So I named the song that, but it's based you know in part on this the very beginning of Animal Farm where they're where uh, uh, Old Major is talking about their play. Anyway, uh, so there's not much of a twist there. It's just a straight-ahead song about animals that want to be free, mm. right? But, but yeah, I think that's because I, like, it was the twist that would motivate me. Oh, a leather clown. Oh, take stuff from work. Oh, a detachable feet. You know, like, yeah. like the thing that just sort of, like, the initial instinct to write is some sort of twist or twisted idea that seems like it would be fun to pursue. I remember in my writing class in high school, we had to bring in a poem, like everyone was signed to bring in a poem. So I brought in the commercial from, uh, <laughs> from the Jesus's way cool and book. And I remember I read it and I read it and I read it very slowly. And I tried to copy your like inflection and stuff. And my teacher, David Miller, he goes, Andrew, my real name's Andrew. He goes, Andrew, you're sick. You need mental help. You shouldn't have brought a poem in like that. And I'm like, no, but he's this author is making fun of, Mass media and absurdity and consumption and and how power. I felt like, t- correct me if I'm wrong. How money and power can allow people to have like a very depraved way of selling things. But just how absurd also mass media is. It's very weird. I don't know. I don't know what I was doing there. I think I started writing about an actual Irish Spring commercial, right? Right. And then like I just thought. Um, well, why am I writing about this? And I thought I want something else to happen. That was the process. But I think you're right about the analysis of it. I had I wrote another one in the same kind of format, which was about the George Michael cover of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me, Elton John's song, right? Right. So he does the first verse, and then he says, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John, and he comes out and sings the second verse. And everyone in the audience is really surprised, and I'm like... I'm like imagining the audience actually like tearing themselves to shreds, just like eating each other and just ripping off each other's limbs because they're so excited that it's Elton John. They didn't expect it. They're like already like having orgasms from George Michael. And then Elton John comes in and just totally finishes them off. And and so it was the same idea. So I don't think I ever did anything with it. I don't know where it is now. But like when I first saw that, that video, it's a video and... And I was like, I, that was the first thing that came to mind. These people are going to kill each other. Because- well, that's like the idea of being so in, enraptured with pop culture that you'll revert to mutilation. That's kind of the trope of Martin Scorsese, right? Even though he's violent, his movies are violent, that you love him so much you just want to show it by ripping his eyes out. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis of what that is. That was motivated by like having watched that scene in Goodfellas, How the Fuck Am I Funny for like the fifth or sixth time in a hotel room when we were on tour. Yeah. You know, and then we got in the van and I think, oh, and I said he's so, you know, he makes the best fucking films and then Roger said, I just want to strangle him, you know, and then I just wrote it. You know, it's like, oh, I just want to shake him. That's what he said. Yeah. I just want to shake him. And I was like, oh, yeah. And it wrote, you know, a lot of them write themselves once you have the, the hook. <laughs> you know, he knew about that song. George Seminara, the video director, wanted to get him in the video, which wow. I thought would have been weird. Like, how is he in the video and I'm not tearing him apart? It wouldn't make sense in the yeah. diegesis of the song. So 
So he he refused, um, or he said, "I can't. My my father is very sick, or something like uh. that." I think he just didn't want to do it. But like his first reaction was, "What? He wants to hurt me?" <laughs> and I was like, "What are you talking about? Don't you get it?" But he might have been in the head of. Age of Innocence or one of his other movies that he was making at the time that had nothing to do with that yeah. or something. So, whatever. Was he, he was, though, probably flattered by it, right? I don't or know. it's hard to know. I don't know. You know, like, I, I was talking about this yesterday. It's like, you know, like, I have heroes myself. Scorsese would be one. Woody Allen be another. Um, and uh, and uh, John Giorno is another. And John Giorno is this poet that I've met a few times. And every time I see him... I want to tell him how inspired I am by him. Um, But I know he doesn't like what I do. He's a little bit familiar with what I do. He's seen me perform a few times and he doesn't really like it, you know? So like, it's embarrassing for him that I'm inspired by him. Just the same way it's embarrassing for me that I, that you're, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I was going to say, hopefully hopefully you don't feel that way. (laughs) But I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but like, you know, we get this heartwarming thing where a kid says, oh, you helped get me through high school, right? Right, right. But then you have this other thing where, like, there's somebody who you just don't think is that good, who was inspired by you, and it's, like, embarrassing. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I wish I... It almost makes me wish I hadn't ever made a single recording because it inspired your awful... No, I'm just... I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but, yeah, that happens, too. Right. I'm not talking about you... And I'm not. Okay, t- I'm not talking about uh, uh, Eagle. What's his name? <laughs> Mike Eagle. Mike. I'm not talking about Mike Eagle either. I love Mike Eagle. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I want to talk about real quick. What was it like when you saw Beavis and Butthead reacting to Scorsese and other videos? Like knowing that you're that you were part of this pop culture moment you know was that weird or was that felt normal uh detachable was on like the, the third episode of beavis and butthead so it wasn't on people's radar yet it wasn't a phenomenon so i didn't even when they told me i was on it i didn't know what it was because it was new yeah and um you know and i watched it and i was like uh, you know oh this is a good i you know it's like i wasn't like blown away by the concept mm-hmm. um uh, he made Idiocracy, that guy, and that's a great, great, great movie. Yeah. And Beavis and Butthead, I think, is coming out of that same sort of uh, approach to like what you know, de-evolution, you know, like of humanity. So I, I, I appreciate his idea. Yeah, I mean, and I think that is what a lot of people do. They sit on the couch, they watch the videos, and they comment on them. So it was like, a, yeah, I mean, I liked it. It was good. I mean, and you know, it got us more airplay. It put more attention onto that song. I was on Beavis and Butthead three times for that, for Detachable, Martin Scorsese, and also the Hey Baby video that uh, Maggie Estep made. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that was, that's the moment where you talk about drinking coffee creamers to, you have, you ask your partner to drink. Yeah, well, she, it's not a partner. It's a guy who's harassing her on the street. And I'm the guy who, who harasses her on the street, which is like, the one time I, I yeah. always say this is the only decent acting job I've ever done in my life because I've had friends who put me in their place. Huge mistake. Um, I just suck at acting. I mean, like I shouldn't say that. It's just like I've never figured out. I've never been that good at memorizing. Like mm. with missile, it's like I read it off a of paper until it's memorized, and that can take weeks sometimes if it's a new piece. 
And like with Unusual Squirrel too, I'm still like reading the shit. I don't, I'm not good at memorizing. Um, so that hurts as an actor. If you don't have the shit memorized, then instead of acting, you're trying to recall, which isn't, doesn't really work. Yeah. So with that, it's a silent film, basically. Like okay. there's no, nothing for me to memorize. So I could just lose myself in this wonderful part that Maggie created, um, of a guy harassing on the street. And I begged her, I was like, please let me be the guy. And she just took a gamble and I really am happy with that. So Google Hey Baby Maggie Estep and that that is me in the video. I'm 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 not proud of a lot of things I've done. But that's one of my favorite things I've done. I remember seeing that and be like, John plays a, a creepy guy well. <laughs> it's like the yeah. villain, the villain. It's surprising. But you know, like this was another thing that used to always bother me about, you know, I feel like I see it less now, but maybe I'm just not walking down the same streets. But like construction workers, that's the that's the um, the uh, cliche, right? But literally, woman passes a construction site, and the guys say something, you know, and it pissed me off. It always pissed me off that kind of like, or they make that noise, you know, or that kind of thing. Just you know, so I think. I would. I had such a strong negative reaction to it that mm. I remembered it and internalized it. Yeah, you know. And so there, like when I'm in that video, I'm sort of like getting back at them somehow, making fun of them um, by being them. You know, you think about all these men who have daughters, you know, and it doesn't occur to any of these other men or even the you know the co-construction worker to his left saying like hey you know cut that out you know that's somebody's daughter it's when toxic masculinity is unchecked that's when it's institutionalized you know and like art can call that out and put it under magnifying glass like no this is not how you're supposed to act this is not how you're supposed to treat women and this is not how you're supposed to treat anyone really you know it's a funny term toxic masculinity um, I guess when I was a teenager, I thought all masculinity was toxic. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have any sense of any positive male role models with the possible exception of my father, who was not particularly macho at all. You know, uh, he did, you know, he used to berate, he used to chastise my sisters for not being ladylike, and that used to piss me off. But for the most part, he was a good man, you know, who didn't, like, get into that, you know, sexist, you know, like reinforcement, right? Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I was reading in high school a lot of feminist stuff and a lot of, uh, you know, Malcolm X. So I was reading, like, uh, pro what is it? You know, just like the marginalized voices that were in the library. So mm -hmm. Betty Friedan, uh, um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, Malcolm X, uh, and uh, uh, I think I read Soul on Ice too, and stuff like that. So like, so which has a lot of sexist stuff in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Might as well mention. So does Malcolm X book a little bit. So I would read that stuff, and. Um, and I became, oh, and the Scum Manifesto. Do you know about this? Valerie Solanas, she's the one who shot Andy Warhol. So oh, she wrote a thing. Oh, she yeah, created her, yeah. this fake thing called the Society for Cutting Up Men, Scum. And uh, the Scum Manifesto is one of the most, you know, ringing indictments of men, you know, that that I have still ever encountered. Um, and 
And that really made me hate the male part of me the same way Malcolm X talks about hating the white part of him, mm. you know? So I hated the male part of me from that. And I hated the white part of me from Malcolm X because I related to it. And there wasn't, you know, so there wasn't that much left of me to celebrate. So a lot of my work isn't really about celebrating, you know, it's not a song of myself. Although Walt Whitman, it's more like, you know, like, let's expose the fucked upness of my mind or my confusion or my um, ambivalence or my depression, whatever. You know, I've changed since then. You know, like, I've realized that, like, we all have to try to shine in our way. Um, that's what we should do. Yeah. Um, and there are ways for straight white males um, from, like, semi-privileged or very privileged backgrounds to still contribute something to this to this world, but it's definitely true. We need to do a lot more listening, um, and we need to make a lot more space for other voices. Got that was a little commercial for like multiculturalism, but That's like great, I man. do believe in it. You I know, agree, I mean, yeah. I, think, I mean, like, and you know, when I was a kid reading that stuff, my thought was. If this stuff succeeds, and I thought it was going to, if this stuff gets to the forefront of the culture, it's going to be better for me. Mm. I don't have to be that stereotypical male. I don't have to be that stereotypical white person. You know, and maybe I am stereotypically male and stereotypically white people, white person, but I don't have to be, you know, and, and sure enough, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I'm I'm male, so I have that privilege anyway. But but I felt like, at that time at least, that would just give all people more freedom, you know. Um, the idea that a man could stay at home and take care of a kid was an idea that in the 70s, you know, feminists were, were uh, propagating. And I thought, I didn't necessarily want to do that, but I thought... Yeah, you know, men should be able to do that, mm. you know, and women should be able to, you know, it's like, why the hell not? You know, it just felt right on a, just a gut level. So I just like really embraced all that stuff. I think an interesting like literary influence that I see in your work, correct me if I'm wrong, is a lot of the, the beat generation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's... And they were very sexist. Yeah, I was going to ask. But somehow you read, like I was reading past that. What I liked about Kerouac was his energy, mm -hmm. you know his his exuberance about life mm -hmm. um and yeah there's some there's there's fucked up stuff about women all throughout the beats um but um but there was stuff in there that i can embrace and you know ginsburg isn't particularly sexist because he's focused on men when he's thinking about sex at all yeah so and and Ginsburg writing more than anybody else's that I kind of uh, internalized that you know those those very long uh, sentences in like things like Howl or or like even like direct phrases that he invented like these compound uh, things I can't think of any but I know I ripped off several of them mm. um, and put them in my poems. Ginsburg's the one I've ripped off the most. Um, and people recognize it who, you know, who know his work and mine. A lot, not everything that I've written is Ginsburgian, but like a lot of it is. And with Kerouac, not his poetry, which I've never embraced, mm. but, but his prose style 
uh, informed a lot of my prose poetry. What is your favorite Kerouac book? Do you have one? Vanity of Dolowa, which um, I think that's how you pronounce it, which um, talks about his... It's very weird that I like that book so much, but like I think it's in three sections, and I can only remember two of them. But the first section is about him playing football uh, in college, mm. and uh, it really like it really captures the um, the excitement of playing a professional sport, but in this very Kerouacian way. And um, and then the last part is about his father uh, dying or very sick. Um, and and it's very visceral and beautiful, um, but it's not a well-known book. And if I were to read it again, I'd probably say this is not Kerouac's best book. But there's something about where I was at the time I was reading it that that really um, it really knocked me out. And I think it's the one that starts with the words "all right, wifey." You know, it's like he's telling his whole thing to his wife, and he's right. calling her wifey, which I don't know if that's meant to be insulting or endearing, but. Um, but, uh, I, I remember being taken aback by that, <laughs> by that opening. Um, but yeah, I think the, but you know, the thing about Kerouac that most inspired me is that he's, he sounds, he reads like he's just talking to you. He reads like mm. he's holding you by the shoulder and just spouting out the whole story to yeah. you as quickly as he can, because he knows you have limited time, <laughs> you know, or something. But that's the way he wrote. Just, he was trying to write like like you talk, and uh, and when you see him read, it sounds like him talking. You know, it's very authentic capturing of the way people talk, and the way that he had such a fantastic memory that the way he could like oh, yeah, piece yeah. stuff together was yeah. like wow, you really remembered that like in a way that you. That was, I feel like, his super superpower. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my memory isn't like his, and so that's why I have to make shit up all the time. I don't remember a single thing that me and Ethan talked about, so I had to make up a leather clown story. <laughs> you are obviously like, you know, I feel like when I follow your blog, you keep your pulse on awesome things happening in New York and artistic and literary and cultural things that happen here. You were you born in New York City? Did you you grew up here, right? Yeah, I was born in Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn. Um, so they lived in Bensonhurst for a couple of years. Then they moved to Bleecker Street, then Houston Street in the West Village. In what ways do you feel like being a like a true New Yorker has maybe defined you or like or influenced you? And is that even a, a is it? Can you even imagine yourself not be having been brought up in this city? I don't. I don't think I would have been an artist. Um, you know, it's like being a vegan here. You know, it's very easy. Right. <laughs> so I wonder if I would have been a vegan had I grown up, you know, in the suburbs or something. But um, David Avram Amram was talking about it yesterday. That there's there's an energy. You know, like. Washington Square Park and all these people, all these writers, Edgar Allan Poe lived near Washington Irving. Henry James has a book called Washington. There's just so much Edna St. Vincent Millay. A lot of people I didn't read, you know, but like um, uh, lived right near where I grew up. And the Beats had mm. their, you know, Amram was one of the first people to back up a beat poet 
with with music, right? So like so and those readings happened like like three blocks from where I grew up, you know. Wow. Um so like um and so as I grew up I was be, became aware of that history. And also like the great comics, Richard Pryor and George Carlin and Bob Newhart and all these people when they were first starting out, they they performed on Bleecker Street or McDougal Street. And uh, and I and I knew this, you know, and and Hendrix played at Cafe Wa on McDougal. Like, um, I missed a lot of it, obviously, mm-hmm. but like, I sometimes would feel their ghosts, you know, even though some of them weren't dead yet. <laughs> but I felt their energy, you know, like or 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 what he was saying. It's like there's an energy right there in the ground. You know, they they buried a lot of people in under Washington Square Park. It was a potter's field before it was a park. So maybe that's it. I don't know. You know, if you want to get mystical again, but like but um there does seem to be an energy there. And I think Whit- Gertrude Whitney started the Whitney on Eighth Street. You know, like there were like so there were like there were <clears throat> artists in that area as well. It was a Bohemian mecca, and um, you know now it is not. But mm. there's still like you know there's Le Poisson Rouge, the back fence, which is where me and Dogbo performed for the first time. It's on Bleecker on Bleecker and Thompson. And that was there until just about two years ago, three years ago. Mm. Um, uh, uh, there was a place called the Speakeasy uh, on McDougal Street. That was where I did my very first open poetry reading. So I sort of walked in their footsteps a little bit. It's like this is roughly where you know Ginsburg and Kerouac, you know, started out. Um, mm. So so even though I wasn't there at the time, like I could still feel like. I was like picking up a mantle. Is that the word? You're picking up, you know, whatever it is, you know, like, and running with it a little bit. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, really, growing up right there um, made it almost inevitable. Although, plenty of other people I knew grew up right there and, and it wasn't inevitable for them. So, I just, I, I stumbled upon the right books as well. How did you and uh, Kramer? link up uh so i had a band called you suck and michael board um and that and that band was partly inspired by michael board had this band called art um which which they had put he would put posters up he he lived on bleaker street he put posters up that said art the only band in the world and it looked intriguing so me and my friend alex went to see them one time and it was like him like ranting and raving and like I don't remember the other musicians, but there was this woman named Lori Montana, and she just did sign language. You know, she didn't, you know. And I thought, this is like a non-musical member of a group. It was a great idea. So I came up with this idea called You Suck, this intentionally bad band mm-hmm. um, that did bad covers, but also married the idea of Michael Board's, you know, like having non-musical, you know, performance artists on stage so we had a guy playing rubik's cube we had a guy we had laurie actually do sign language once or twice we had like all these different people doing non-musical things david brought this like dead fish and like a fishing line and he like <laughs> waved it around the audience at cb's one time so hilly crystal at cb's loved this anyway 
Uh, Does video of you suck I exist? I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I've Googled to see if anyone has it, but I haven't seen it. You know, okay. this was before video. So right. This is film. Wow. So if there's film, I don't know about it. Okay. But, and, and, there, and, there, and I don't know if there are any live recordings either, there, but we made a single with Michael Board. And then when uh, I wanted to make demos for a missile, I called a Michael Board and I said, uh, who should I get to record my demos? And he said, well, do you want like a really good top of the line guy or do you want a really fast guy? You know, and I said, I want, I want a really fast guy. You know, we want it, like I have a, a limited amount of money. We have a bunch of songs we want to record fast. And so he said, uh, Kramer. You know, mm. he actually said Mark Kramer. So I, call, I remember calling and he's saying, is Mark Kramer there? And then the guy on the answer end, he goes, it's a guy asking for Mark Kramer, you know, like making fun of me for right. not knowing he's just called Kramer. And, uh, and he talked really fast and, uh, you know, he said, okay, here's the deal. You give me $700, you know, you can have the whole day, you know? And in the whole day we made like the 11 recordings that made up Fleeting on the Hump. Wow. And he liked them. Um, there's only 10 now cause he took out pygmies and drums, which is this little thing that's on the vinyl copy only. But, um, mm. uh, but he liked them. So he said, you know, I'm starting a label, you know, I could just put this out. And I said, okay, sure. You know, it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> that late, I, yeah. yeah. I had no idea what the label was going to be. Wow. I didn't know who Bongwater was. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know about his history with Eugene Chadbourne. I didn't know anything about him. You know, but somehow, like the recordings he made for fluting, I love. You know, um, yeah, it's um, it, it was exactly the approach I would have wanted had I known what to ask for. Did he give you insight into like? Did you did he co-write on any of those songs, or was it more just like, okay, guys, go? Um, he didn't do any writing. Um, we had those songs, they were done. We had been performing for like a year and a half in like, yeah. in like poetry places. And I think the newly opened Knitting Factory, we had already started playing there. Um, but, um, but then on They, he wrote some parts because he, mm. thought, he thought that some of the songs needed some additional stuff. And he had this thing that annoyed the shit out of you, which was he would just put his shit on your records and then mix them and say, okay, it's done. You know, without you being there, uh. you know. Um, so uh, he didn't do that with Mystical, and he didn't do that with Fluting, but he did do that with They. And to be fair, there were like 15 or 20 songs on They, and some of them did need stuff. I wouldn't have done it the way he had done it, but the way he did it, but like, you know, he made some of those songs better, and some of them he didn't make better, I don't think. So, but then when you did Real Men, you kind of just acquiesced and were like, okay, well, let's see if we just go in, f like, that record where you two worked together, was that before They or after? That was, af that was after They. That was right, that was, um, we had been signed to Atlantic, and I had, like, a stockpile of stuff. Okay. Um, and, uh, and Mark. Kramer, <laughs> Kramer, Kramer said, let's do one more record and not tell the label, you know, like, right. you know, we'll put it out before, you know, the, the label was kind of pissed, but, um, what the hell they don't really, really, they were paying, they were giving us so little money. Like I didn't feel like they had to write. So, but that record made me angry for a long time because Kramer said, okay, oh. we're just going to let the, we're going to let the thing run. 
and you just read your shit, you know? So I did that, right? Like I went through, like you can even, I think you can hear rustling of paper sometimes and just like me like trying to find the next thing. So you just like let the thing run for 10 minutes and then another 10 minutes. And, And then like I left and he showed me what he wrote for water and I thought it was really nice. That was the only thing. And then the next thing I heard was it was done and I listened to it and he took everything I recorded in the order that I recorded it Mm. and just like played background, you know, his background stuff and his samples and all this stuff and in the order I recorded it. And I was like, shocked i was like because i had like we would record it almost like 50 minutes of stuff and i figured we'd cut out like the crap okay but like <laughs> but yeah. but like everything's in there like every single thing oh even in real men like i'm like i say i mess up at the end you and say, i say yeah. oh can we go back and he just sh- shakes his head and so i start again and he doesn't edit it. He just like leaves that like Adds that flavor to it. I mean, he just like left everything exactly the way it recorded, even like some, you know whatever. So like, I was just shocked, and I didn't. You know, I'm really big about sequencing. You know, just like putting shit in like the or you know, and like yeah. he had already mastered both sides, oh, and I was like, but this starts so weird with enjoy your tea or something. I can't remember. So I said, or. You know, so I said, well, can we at least make side one, side two, and side two, side one? And he said, yes. And I thought that made it a little bit better, you know, just like changing the order of the sides. But you know, on the, but then yeah, on the, that's CD. why it's, yeah, I'm explaining <laughs> yeah. why that's, so, but like, yeah, he didn't change it on the, on the album cover or something. So like, so all this stuff, and it sounds on SoundCloud, if you know how to fix that on SoundCloud, <laughs> but like all the songs are misattributed, the titles because of that. That is that's an amazing story. Yeah. I always wondered that, and I was like, "Wait, these titles don't because yeah. the, the I have the vinyl too, and that is obviously you just oh pick a yeah. different side." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, but I wanted to mention that you know as we wrap up, like as oh, a, but now I like yeah. that record. I mean, like now I feel like a good third of that is solid, decent shit. You know, yeah. And then like you know another third is okay, and then another third really shouldn't have been on there. But that's partly my fault. I didn't have to record it in the first place but sometimes i just don't know what's good you know it's like Mm. and i wrote this recently so maybe this is good so i'm gonna record this too you know not a good approach you know mark twain wasn't he wasn't he didn't have good analysis of like what was his good stuff and what was his bad stuff you Mm. know and i think like the hallmark of a creative person is you just do it all especially now in this era yeah you put it all out well edgar Allan poe thought his masterpiece was eureka which is this science fiction thing where he thought he had discovered like like the the origin of the the universe or something i don't remember exactly but like but you know people have returned to eureka and said like he had a lot of ideas that have since been verified so maybe yeah (laughs) anyway there'll be maybe real men is your opus john (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people you know and i always say like if you like this record you 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 it's more likely you'll like me. It's the most like me record that I've ever made. It's yeah. the most personal like me record um, for good or bad. <laughs> well, as a, as a fan of yours, it, it just showed me that like, other than like, you know, acoustic music with choruses and song structure, it showed that you had this ability to shift gears so rapidly and surprisingly. 
Like, if you think about a song called, like, Pickaxe, which is on uh, the, the first Atlantic record, you know, like, I, I remember, like, just writing, she split my head open with a pickaxe, and I loved it. And she tore my heart out of my chest, and I loved it. And then my eyes are open and bleeding, you know, just like, it was just like, whatever came next. And then we just took that chunk of writing from, like, page 42 of my, like, journal, right? And just made a song out of that. On the Real Men record, I would have just read that straight through. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't, you know, maybe wouldn't have had the same kind of dynamics that the song has, but it's the same approach to writing, very, like, free, you know, uh, stream of consciousness, you know. And so, like, on Real Men, it is just the stream, completely unedited. Yeah. And so have, it was kind of, was it the A&R or the producer's idea to, like, make it a more of a rock song? Or was pickaxe? Yeah. No, that was us. You yeah. know, like I brought it to Dave and he came up with a riff, you know. Um, it, I, I would say like 90, 80% of the time uh, with the with Missile, I was bringing them words and they were just like trying to figure out music. Occasionally, um, so Martin Scorsese is like that. Occasionally, they came up with jams Um so with detachable, I had a good idea that that was gonna. I I liked those words, so I waited. Mm. Like that was written by the time of the first Atlantic record, but we didn't put it on that record because I didn't hear the music that I thought would work for it. But then they had that detachable. You know, they they had written that thing, um, and I was like, oh, that's good music for detachable. You know, and somehow like. I came up with like that backing vocal, detachable beat, you know, in the falsetto, which is me singing like tripled. So like, so like that just felt like, so, so I'd say like a small percentage of time I'm listening to their music and looking for lyrics of mine that'll fit in it. But I think more often than not, they wrote music that they felt like cheesecake truck, just like perfect. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Dave Rick hates that, but like he hates that. I think he hates cheesecake truck, but like, but um, but it's perfect for what the words are, you know. How did um? What's the story behind the cover of Happy Hour? Hmm. If you don't mind talking about it. No, I don't. I mean, like that was like uh, Atlantic Records had hired this art director, and she was very aggressive about her ideas or, and her friends. I think so. Her friend had made this work of art, and she like to help out her friend bought it for our cover um Mm. but we thought it was wrong in so many ways it just really wasn't um we had we had a friend who who made this uh sad ice cream cone sitting at a bar yeah uh, and we used that as the cover for the detachable penis single but that really would have been a good cover for the album you know happy hour it's like you know it's like the, the the album was exactly an hour long which is why we named it Happy Hour. Um, and then we decided to name that sad song Happy Hour after the album. Um, but, um, but yeah, so we thought we would have some sort of like bar theme to the cover. But like the art director just, for one thing, I think she wasn't American and didn't know what Happy Hour meant. So like, so she just went with like, uh, a um a photo which actually looked better in the original version um but they had to scrunch it down so it's look so yeah. not only does it look like you know 
not only does it look well, whatever, it, it just like it's a distorted. It's a, the artwork is distorted, and the artwork wasn't really what we would have chosen for 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 our for our record anyway. Yeah. Um, um, it was one of the rare instances, really, of Atlantic imp- imposing their their concept on us, um, and we just didn't have the power to like fight it. And they didn't know they had a, this hit, this sleeper hit on that record, right? That like. Well, no, I think they did think that was going to be the hit. So she chose a phallic shaped thing yeah. to like promote that song, but uh. the album wasn't named after the song, and like. I don't think a lot of people. I mean, you know, that's always a problem with record with albums is associating the song with the album and getting people to buy the album based on the song. It's always been a tricky business. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think it sold any records for us. That cover, you know, some great cover art can, you know, like, like we never made a T-shirt out of that album or any of our albums. Now that I think about it, um, but. You know, like you think of the Modern Lovers first record, it's iconic and misfit. You know, some some bad brains, some some bands have like this great iconic art, and we never really came up with anything that was like really reflected us. You had that great shirt, which is the Warhol banana that's like moldy. Yeah, it says attach here underneath it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was Roger's idea, also the drummer, I think, to 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 do to do that. Um, but yeah, that's a very derivative idea. I mean, yeah. it's just of an underground uh, Andy Warhol banana, um, and we just used it for our purposes. Well, these days you are free of the label's oppression of their cover art, and you're <laughs> involved in a few a few different projects. Like, um, can we talk about Unusual Squirrel? Or yeah, Unusual. Well, so uh, you know. Some okay. I mean, like the origin of me getting back into it was um, somebody contacted me wanting uh, uh, to license Jesus was way cool, and we couldn't figure out like anymore who owned the rights to the recording because it had passed hands so many times. Mm. Uh, the shimmy disc stuff. Yeah. Um, and they wanted like I was trying to negotiate to just get to buy the rights. They wouldn't give me a number. So so I said, you know, it was just me and Chris on piano. And I said, uh, why don't we... I think he suggested re-recording it. And we re-recorded Jesus Way Cool for this uh, this uh, uh, Adult Swim TV show. I can't remember the name of them now. Mm. I should. Anyway, that got us moving along. And we decided to re-record Detachable. We made a re-recording of Detachable, which nobody has licensed for anything but we thought they might and then since we got along well we started doing shows Mm. but it was hard to get the guys and it still is to get all four um or even three because chris is in san francisco anyway so we have him like we have a different keyboard player now but it's hard it was hard and frustrating for me because now once i started performing again i wanted to perform yeah and i had written some new stuff that I was excited about. So I formed Unusual Squirrel with some friends, you know, to, to like make it easier for me to perform um, when those guys were busy. Um, and uh, we made a record and um, it's on Bandcamp, I think, and maybe SoundCloud too. I don't remember, but it's definitely on Bandcamp. 
And then, like, Unusual Score was offered this show, and uh, we couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, only me and Susan from the band. Susan's the woman who started Bushwick Book Club as well. She's been very inspiring to me in many ways. So she said, why don't we just start another band? And I said, okay. And she's like, how about if this band is just all women except for you? And I was like, oh, that's great. And and at the time, I thought I should have a concept for the band. And we made it about um, male submission, female dominance, um, and that's sensation play. So so basically, I had those two projects going for the last couple of years. And then yet another project is called uh, Silk Cut, which is me and Rebecca. I'm sorry, R.B. Corbett. Uh, she plays drums on Fluting on the Hump, but she's actually a guitarist. So it's me, it's me on ukulele oh. and her on guitar, um, just a duo act. And we've played a few times. Um, and we've got some stuff that we may record. And Sensation Play started recording, and hopefully we'll pick it up again. So um, And Unusual Squall probably has enough for another record, too. And it's just like, keep writing, you know, and like... Um, I've been having a good time, you know, writing writing missile-esque stuff that usually goes to Unusual Squirrel because it's hard to get missile together. And then, like, the male submission stuff goes to Sensation Play. And then, like, I don't know exactly what the concept for Silk Cut is, like, in terms of lyrics, but it it's different, you know? Like, it's more like songs or more like more like the it's more about the music it's me and rebecca like kind of like jamming together and trying to come up with like musical ideas and then you know i don't know we'll see what that becomes um it probably needs some more musicians you know like a drummer or something and then you a few years ago king missile the fourth came out oh right 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 king missile the fourth happened before king missile reunited actually oh okay yeah um um, because I was writing those, this fucking guy poems and, uh, and then I was visiting LA to see a friend really. But then like my old friend Azalea, who I made a record with like a million years ago around, uh, like right after fluting, I think she was, she loved fluting and she like came up to me after a show and said, I want to work with you. Hmm. And we made a record called baby brother. And, um, uh, uh, that was my first home studio recording. It was really great. Anyway, so she now like still does home studio recordings with her husband, uh, and um, um, and she was like, "We could make music for uh, for f- some of your this fucking guy poems." And so yeah. I recorded vocals, and then they like, you know, for them to work with. And then I went, I went when I was in L.A. I recorded the vocals over their musical tracks. And then we released the six song "This Fucking Guy" EP um, through a New Zealand label, right? Through New Zealand, and yeah. we went to New Zealand and toured behind it. How we was like, that? We, it was amazing. Yeah, I love New Zealand, and and King Missile's "Detachable" was a number one song in New Zealand. Wow! So that's actually that's why New Zealand was like not completely out of the blue. Uh, it, New Zealand and Australia were really one of the best markets for King Missile, but we never played there. We Oh, like, wow. Yeah, we had crappy management who could not figure out how to capitalize on oh the God. fact that we had, like, the whole trajectory of Missile could have been different had we done that because we could have gotten, like, 
major press over there and yeah, it was a big mistake, I think, to miss that opportunity. So you had fans who had never seen you perform yeah. come to see that tour. Yeah, they were in their 80s. <laughs> <laughs> it came in on crutches and wheelchairs. They were like, yeah, I used to listen to you in high school. I can't believe you're finally here. It was great. Yeah. Um, you brought your ukulele all the way to Brooklyn. and Well, they're not heavy. <laughs> it's a Les Paul. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's beautiful. Would you be down to pl- give us a, a, a jam? Uh, I play a couple of songs. I'm not an improvisationalist, so it wouldn't be a jam necessarily. <laughs> this is a sensation play song. Maybe I'll do this one first, and maybe that'll get my confidence going. I'll do the other one. Major disaster. 
landslide could hit the Himalayas An earthquake could leave 20,000 dead An, A hurricane could cut across the east coast I don't know about you, but I don't want that hanging over my head Terrible things could happen that would suck if we fucked So I guess we better not fuck We better not fuck We better not All kinds of terrible, horrible things could happen So I guess we better not We better not We better not We better not That's as good as it's going to get, my friend. Well, John, thank you very much. Where can people, where do you, where do you recommend people follow you and where can we find you? Oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm not that hard to find on Facebook anymore. There is a King Missile, John S. All King Missile, which is public, but like... If you send me a Facebook message to John S. Hall, I will probably just, you know, like accept your request <laughs> until until I get the limit to too many followers or whatever it is. And Instagram, also, uh, I think it's John underscore S underscore Hall. Uh, or OMG, it's JSH, is Twitter, I think. Something like that. Um, OMG, it's JSH, Twitter. Yeah, John S. Hall with the underscores. And I think you can find me on Facebook, too. It's not that hard. And I'll try to keep up with up to date on what I'm doing. You play New York a lot, don't you, with your different projects? It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's still places to play in New York. As long as there are places that'll have me, I'll do it because I, like I like to do it. Thank you for being on the show, man. It's been really cool talking MCLR, to you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And we will, I'll keep everyone posted and uh, thank you again. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye bye. Oh my goodness. So cool to talk with John. What a great interview. These songs he played, the first one was uh, from his band Sensation Play. Then the second one was from the Unusual Squirrel album, F Sandwich. So I kind of edited them together because he did a few takes, so I kind of wanted to put them back to back. So you can find those online. I don't think you can find the Sensation Play one yet, but you will be able to. I was going to end with something I found while I was editing this. I was hoping I had it, and I did. This is crazy. So almost 20 years ago, in September of 2000, I was in New York for CMJ. My high school had a radio station, and I went to CMJ and I interviewed John for my radio show, which was kind of crazy, like to think 20 years before I interviewed him. So I'm just going to play that. It's short, but it's kind of cool to see like me as the fan still being interested in his music and, and picking his brain. And he talked to me while his band was loading in at this venue he played at the now defunct College Music Journal Festival in New York. And I think, you know, getting to know John's music and getting to know him is what made me kind of interested in possibly moving to New York, especially that trip 20 years ago made me really love the city. So here we go. Uh, next week we have Jesse Dangerously, Canadian rapper. I've worked with him a lot. He's awesome. Tune into that. Thanks y'all for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Peace. For as long as I can remember, I've always been a big fan of the New York rock group King Missile. Combining clever lyrics with unique music, King Missile stand out for both their lyrical ingenuity as well as musical prowess. 
A few weeks ago, I was able to meet with the singer for the band King Missile in New York as part of the CMJ Music Marathon Music Festival. Before he went to do his show, he gave me some time to do a quick interview with him, which we will now play for you. It went a little something like this. So I'm here in New York with uh, John S. Hall, frontman of King Missile. We're here in New York. Hello. Here we are, Avenue A. And we're uh, getting psyched for his show, for his performance as part of the CMJ Music Marathon. And I'm just going to ask you some questions, John, if that's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. John, what, how would you describe your music and the kind of stuff that you do? Well, I don't usually describe the music because I don't have anything to do with the music. But um, except, well, except sometimes I'm like, well, I don't know about that music. Why don't we try some other music? But um, it's basically, you know, I do the spoken word thing mostly and sometimes the singing thing sometimes. And, uh, you know, people like it. Different kinds of music, depending on the words. Uh, we try to do stuff that's appropriate. So would you consider yourself more as a, a poet as, than a musician? I'd say more a writer than a poet, but more a poet than a musician. That's well put. <laughs> How long have you been writing? How far back can you remember being a writer? Uh, I don't think I thought of myself really as a writer until like the second or third record, which was around 1990. But um, I was writing, you know, since, uh, since I was a kid. And when was the first time you put your stuff to music? Uh, uh, this, the, the Missile-esque stuff that we do now started uh, doing that in uh, like around 15 years ago. Do you have a favorite album of yours? Um, I really like Failure. I really like Happy Hour. I really like Mystical. I really like Fluting. Um, it depends on my mood what I like the best. Some of them, I think, didn't come across quite as well as I would have liked, but I don't think I'd... I like uh, the Salvation record the least, I guess, but I don't really dislike it. I know that you were assigned to Atlantic for a while, and you had a lot of... They were putting you towards the alternative radio and marketing you as an alternative band. Well, at that time, it was either that or, like, one of the other... F I mean, at that time, alternative meant anything they didn't know what to do with, which made sense in our case, because we certainly weren't a metal band or a hard, hard rock or folk type of thing. So, uh, so I didn't necessarily think it was inappropriate, but... Uh, over the years, alternative came to be uh, associated with a certain like Nirvana and post-Nirvana sound, and by that at that point, because when we got signed, like Bleach had come out, but not never mind people. You heard alternative, you thought of maybe REM or something, which is maybe a little bit more. You know, I mean, we we certainly weren't hard like Nirvana. John and I continued our interview, talking about King Missile the fate of music in the hands of the digital music revolution and his favorite authors. Where do you see yourself in the future? Uh, I figure I'll keep writing as long as I keep writing and, uh, um, and probably keep making records one way or another. You know, whether or not anything gets played on the radio to death again, uh, it's probably unlikely, but you never know. Do you ever think you're going to publish another book of your stuff? That will probably happen. That's not so difficult. It's easier now than it was even back then to do it, back when I made the first one. So. Oh. People will publish your book for free these days, so oh, it's cool. like it's a pretty easy deal. What do you think of the copyright issues of Internet and MP3s, and do you have an opinion? 
I, I guess the conclusion I've reached is that um, music distributed on the internet should be handled um, in, a, in kind of the same way that, uh, that radio is dealt with, that people who um, trade in music should pay a small fee um, for, for the use of that music, but it shouldn't necessarily be controlled by the record companies or, or, or the individual artists. It, it, you know, like once you record something, I think people should have the right to distribute it as long as they pay you a small fee. The way it works with like covering songs. When you cover a song, you're supposed to pay a small amount. Uh, and that's how I think it should be done with the uh, copying uh, recordings as well. That's basically my idea. So, um, well, not my idea, but that's one of the things that's been handed about. So, in other words, Napster technology would be fine, and I think it's a good thing. And I think it's very helpful. It's just a matter of doing it in such a way that people get compensated. Because he is an author himself, I needed to ask John S. Hall, who his favorite artist at the moment was. He said he was currently reading a book and told me about the author he was reading. So we're, oh, oh, oh a, I remember, it's Borges. Uh, cool. Borges, oh. Borges yeah. Do you translation? Or do you read Spanish? Yeah, no, the translation. The, the new, the new uh, collected fictions that just came, came out last year. I, I got a paperback copy of it. It's really great. I like him a lot. Cool. And you have a new album, right? The Body Has a Head, is that it? It's not new. Uh, oh. The Failure record came out after the Body Has a Head record. Oh. I think, uh, uh, and then we put out our own called the Green Record. I think okay. I gotta go in now. I thanked him for the interview, and John went to set up for the concert. The show was magnificent, and I'll never forget it. Be sure to keep your ears open for any new King Missile material in the future, as it is evident that John will continue making new, memorable songs.